I'm Andrew Simon, and this is Temperature Check, a new podcast from Grist. Temperature Check is a weekly show about climate, race, and culture. On this post-Thanksgiving day, uh, we have a special episode for you. It's a conversation between journalists Nicole Hannah-Jones and Brenton Mock, straight-up heavyweights. Nicole Hannah-Jones is one of the most important thinkers and journalists of our time. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and the force behind the New York Times 1619 Project, which is arguably one of the most influential pieces of journalism in the past decade. The 1619 Project makes the case that enslaved Africans are the center of America's story. The work she spearheaded is changing the way we understand our own history, uh, how we teach America's founding in schools, and how we think about where we are today. Really, really huge deal. Now, back in June, uh, Nicole sat down with my friend and former colleague, Brenton Mock. He's currently a writer and editor over at Bloomberg City Lab. They came together for a virtual event co-hosted by Chris and Town Hall Seattle. Today, because we are so thankful for Nicole's years of incredibly important work, we bring you a condensed version of that conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Brenton's asking Nicole about her New York Times Magazine cover story, What is Owed, which was published in June around the time that this conversation dropped. Uh, Her story makes a powerful case for reparations for Black Americans. So let's get into it. Talk about why it was so urgent for you to write this essay and make this call now, um, especially during a pandemic when economies are being wrecked and everything. I mean, it's, it was just funny to me. It was just like, I know that y'all's economy is messed up, but we still need reparations. I was just worried that in this moment of, that was possibly a transformative moment that we were asking for too little, that the least we can uh, expect from our government is that the state can't kill citizens without consequence, but that what makes Black lives so hard is the absolute wealth poverty that uh, almost all of us live in. And I understand that we're in the middle of a pandemic, but the, the Black suffering in this pandemic is something that we may likely never recover from. In fact, Black people haven't recovered from the last recession. We're the only racial group who earns less now than we did in the year 2000. Um, More than half of Black workers, adults are out of work right now. Uh, We have the highest rate of people who've missed a mortgage payment and a rental payment. Um, So if we didn't deal with asking for what we really need to have equality uh, and to make this a transformative moment, it just seemed like we would be missing uh, out on a a tremendous opportunity to push an agenda that actually could um, change the material interests of Black Americans. And I guess the last thing I'll say is the pandemic has exposed a lot of things, right? It's clearly uh, laid a magnifying glass on all of the inequalities that already existed. But one of the things we've always heard when it came to reparations is we just can't afford to do this as a country. Well, you know, in a matter of a couple of weeks, we passed a nearly three, you know, 2.3 trillion, trillion, trillion dollar uh, stimulus package, uh, including a half a trillion dollars of money that uh, has gone to businesses, including large corporations, with the federal government telling us, we don't even have to tell you who got the money and how much. So it's clear that that excuse is no longer one that will hold water. So for all of those reasons, this just seemed like the time to really make the case and lay out why it is the moral and just thing to do. It's time for an economic stimulus uh, package that will deal with the singularity of Black suffering in this country. 
one of the other things that this pandemic has kind of brought out, um, even if maybe circumstantially, is um, the uh, the burden that's placed on Black journalists in terms of how we can even cover things like racial disparities or how we can cover uh, protests over police violence and police brutality. And um, this, this issue of objectivity and whether Black journalists can or need to or should be objective in these times um, has come back to the forefront. So even the, well, what, one, let's be clear, the, the idea of objectivity is actually a fairly recent phenomenon, even in mainstream journalism. And that's not how journalism in this country started out either. Um, but the idea of objectivity is certainly a white nor- middle class normative view clearly. Um, The only thing that we're objective about are things we don't know enough about to have formed an opinion. And as soon as you become uh, knowledgeable about anything, you have opinions and thoughts and feelings about it. And all of us in this country, no one escapes seeing their world and experiencing their world in America uh, through a non-racialized lens. Black people have just been much more open and upfront about it. So what we're seeing in this period are Black folks um, really calling out and being tired of, of white people pretending that they're objective and that we're not, and really trying to force an acknowledgement that none of us are. What's always been important is that our coverage is as accurate as it can be and that it's fair. Um, and we're not trying to pretend that we're objective about, you know, the police shouldn't be killing us and that we have a personal stake in the stories. Um, but the myth has been that white Americans haven't, white reporters haven't had a personal stake in the stories, but clearly they have. Um, when white journalists have ignored school segregation, it's because they have a personal stake in it because school segregation benefits their kids. When white journalists have, um, again and again, taking the word of police when police say, oh, this black guy uh, deserved to die because he reached for my gun or, you know, uh, I was scared for my life. We White journalists took that at face value. That's a bias. Um, that's a bias based on your interactions with police being they respect your rights and they just don't kill you for any reason. So I think we are um, in a period where All of these so-called norms are being exposed and challenged, and I think that our profession will be better for it. All my answers won't be that long. Sorry. No, it's it's cool. That's that's what we came to hear. You know. Are we gonna drink (laughs) this bourbon or what? Because I brought I brought mine. Okay. I got mine. I got mine. I got mine here. Look, this is a tough issue, y'all. So we're gonna get through it. I know. Um, He he asked me. I wasn't gonna do this, but. Because I don't, I realize like, I don't think I ever had a conversation with you where whiskey wasn't involved, and I didn't want this to be the precedent. To tell us, um, you shouldn't objectively feel that unarmed citizens or citizens, period, shouldn't be killed by the state without consequence is ridiculous, and that's that's a standard um, that even white journalists don't always adhere to, right? Like when you're covering uh, the president, white journalists are not objective about believing you should follow the constitution, uh, that you shouldn't be a corrupt president. We're not neutral in those positions. When a uh, white journalist covers uh, child protective services and exposes, you know, that a child got killed because someone wasn't doing their job, that's not neutral. They're not writing about this because they don't care what the outcome is. They're writing about these things because they believe that they're wrong. And we got into journalism uh, to hold powerful people accountable. 
these are not neutral positions. But when it comes to black folks, we're expected somehow to be neutral. And I just think it's great that we're calling all that shit out right now. This is the beauty of, of being black. I always say like no one in America understands this country better than we do. Um, Absolutely. And probably in native people as well. Right. Because the only way we have survived is we have had to study and understand this country and not be able to look at this country with rose tinted glasses. Um, that's how black folks call Donald Trump. Right. We, we, we were right. all of us saying every black journalist I knew was like, this is about racism. And yet our, right. our white colleagues were convinced it had to be something else. Well, no one's really arguing in that anymore. Um, so the sense that their objective, um, is a luxury of being a white journalist in white newsrooms in a white dominated society. And we don't have that luxury. And, and until it affects them, right? Because another corollary is climate change, mm-hmm. where I remember, again, for years, scientists were adamant about, um, or science writers anyway, were adamant about covering these things objectively in newspapers, even to this day, media outlets to this day still give um, a microphone or give ink to people who are skeptical about climate change um, until it affects their backyards. And, and I remember, um, you know, James Hansen was one of the you know, main scientists who was like crying holy hell about climate change. And they didn't like him because he was passionate, right? And you're supposed to be dispassionate. Mm-hmm. You know, now you got scientists out there like Million Man March, you know, they out there marching <laughs> Black Lives Matter and everything, talking about climate justice. Um, we needed that 30, 20, 30 years ago. Hey, you're listening to an excerpt of a conversation between journalist Brenton Mock featuring Nicole Hannah-Jones, the mind behind the 1619 Project at the New York Times. This event was taped in the summer of this year and was sponsored by Grist and Town Hall Seattle. I'm Andrew Simon, and we'll be right back after this quick break. Hi, I'm Mirka, the social media engagement fellow at Grist.org. Temperature Check is a new show about climate, race, and culture produced by Grist and made possible by listeners like you. Founded in 1999, Grist remains committed to changing the national narrative around climate. And as a nonprofit, none of our work is possible without the steady and loyal support from people like you. At a time when our global community demands action to address the climate crisis, our work at Grist has never been more important. Every day we work tirelessly to bring you the climate news that matters most. And for us to engage our audience of millions of people, we need you. So thank you for joining today's episode, and please consider making a donation to Grist today. Donate now, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thanks for tuning in. And now we're back with Brenton Mock and Nicole Hannah-Jones. You have people like Ava DuVernay, who was putting out movies like Selma and the, the Central Park Five project. Um, Casey Lemons with her Harriet Tubman movie. All of you all, and I'm including you in the 1619 Project, all of you are these Black women who were doing this attempt at, at correcting the historical account, right? And reframing the history and centering the actual people who needed to be at the center, quite frankly, um, Black people. And for that, like, all of you just kind of got pounced on um, by historians um, saying, you didn't know what you were talking about. You're, you're getting the history wrong. Blah, blah, blah. I don't need to recount to you but what, what, what they were saying. Um, and by the way, I need to add in that Nicole was actually offered. Um, she is now a fellow with the Society of American Historians. Um, so we need to point that out. But how much of this 
do you think is is kind of owed to this idea that that white men feel like they need to be the exclusive narrators of history? Um, you know, if you were a white man and you offered the 1619 Project, do you think you would have gotten the same kind of scrutiny? Yeah. So one, to be clear, it, there was always a small number of historians who came out against the project. Um, several historians, including historians from Harvard and Princeton, wrote for the project. Um, uh, as you mentioned, I was uh, named a fellow of the American Society of Historians. So clearly, it's it's not the bulk of historians who felt that way. Um, but I think what we can judge is that that small group of historians got an inordinate amount of attention for attacking the project as they did with uh, Ava's um, Selma. And I think that does speak to, you have had these gatekeepers who feel that they have the exclusive right to shape the narrative of American history. Uh, the way we kind of tend to think about history is, um, History is just the facts and there's no bias in the way that history is presented, but that's clearly not true. Um, historians choose what they want to study. History is not just about facts, but the interpretation of those facts. Something similar happened, of course, when Annette Gordon-Reed um, was coming out saying that Thomas Jefferson had fathered children with Sally Hemings. There was, um, you know, they tried to take her down over that and they said it just wasn't true. And now that's accepted that this is historical fact. So I wasn't surprised that there was a very vicious response to uh, a project in the New York Times that was putting Black people at the center, that was arguing that slavery is foundational to the United States. Someone like me is not supposed to be having an influence on how this country sees America. Um, but I, I have, and this project has, and I'm tremendously proud of it. Great. Um, I, I have some questions coming in. A poignant question from Mike Harrington. Um, he's saying, as a Black person, seeing the tragedy in our communities every morning has worn him down. Mm. And as you just said, you are, you're in it. You're in the thick of it. Um, he has a simple question. How do you take care of yourself? Um, Besides bourbon. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, um, so last year was probably like the hardest year. The 1619 Project was the hardest thing I ever wrote. And then, so writing it was extremely taxing. I was drinking way too much. I was eating way too much. Um, and then the attacks that came after was even like more taxing. But I kind of made uh, the commitment when we had to go into quarantine for the COVID-19 I was going to like get my shit together that if anything good was going to come out of having to be locked down in Brooklyn, it was going to be that I was going to like care for myself. And, and one of the things um, Tanahazi always said to me is like, we got to be here. Like we need you here to be writing and fighting for our folks. And like, you can't be here if you're not taking care of yourself. So um the way that I've been taking care of myself, you see my skin is looking all fabulous and dewy. I've been like uh, <laughs> eating well. I've been exercising every day. Um, I drank only once a week. I, I did this for Brenton just because he asked me, but normally I only drank on uh, Saturdays. Uh, and really trying to use this moment to um, center myself and make sure that uh, not just physically, but mentally, I can keep doing this work because it's really hard. Uh, you know this, Brenton. Like, um, 
this work is really hard and it's it's hard just being black but um never kind of getting an escape i don't write about frivolous things and uh i've really been trying to do self-care i i always thought that self-care was um silly like who has time to be thinking about that type of thing we need to be out here with our swords out uh trying to like you know make 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 something better for our folks and uh my grandmother working in, you know, a cotton field didn't have time for self-care. So how, how am I going to sit up here and think about that? Uh, but I've realized that um, it actually is really, really critical. And it's critical so that we can actually be here to, to keep fighting these battles. So appreciate the question. Cool. And we got a question from Anna Knopf. Um, you know, you were just talking about how taxing it is to be a Black journalist, especially in this space today. She's asking, like, how do we encourage more rising black and journalists of color, you know, to pursue careers in journalism and stay for the long haul, um, given all of the institutional hurdles and emotional labor we just discussed um, in our newsrooms? Yeah. So. You name the profession where you're not going to face this. It doesn't exist. Right. Like being a black person trying to work in spaces that are predominantly white is going to come with the same struggles no matter uh, where you're working. But at least I know that I feel like every day I do a job that I know is important, that matters, that's a mission. Um, so I feel like my work is, is actually uh, making a difference. Um, with that said, like it's going to be a struggle, and people who know me know that I was nearly forced out of the industry myself, and there were times when I just didn't think I would ever be able to make it and do the type of reporting that th that I thought was important. Um, but it's absolutely critical that we're here. You know, the very first newspaper, uh, black newspaper in this country, the Freedom's Journal, their motto was. Um, we wish to plead our own cause too long have others spoken for us. And that's why we have to, you know, we have to be in these newsrooms because people are going to either write our story or ignore our stories. And if we're not there to tell them correctly, they'll continue to write uh, our stories to take away our humanity. Can you kind of talk um, about like the, this kind of nuance and complicated feelings you have about America and its independence, especially as we approach the, the 4th of July. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I found the, um, the critiques that the 1619 Project is an American-hating project and that I hate America amazing because uh, my essay for the 1619 Project is the most patriotic thing I've ever written. And in fact, I shocked myself um, by writing it. Um, this is, you know... The only way that you can believe that the 1619 Project is anti-American is if you don't think Black people are fully American. Because as I say in the project, uh, in my piece, Black people have believed in this country with a faith it did not deserve. Black people have uh, taken the, the majestic ideas upon which we were founded and fought generation after generation to make them true. So how could I hate a country that we built? How can I hate a country um, that is the only place my, me and all my ancestors going back as far as I can count have ever known. Um, but what we want is a country that actually reflects its ideals. 
we want a country that actually uh, believes and manifests universal equality, that treats all um, citizens and non-citizens with humanity and justice. Um, that's the America that I believe in, not this uh, idealized um, version of America that believes in some exceptionalism that, that never existed, that forces us to ignore what, what happened to indigenous people, that forces us to ignore what happened to black people. Um, but to understand that this is truly a multiracial project um, with some of us fighting much harder than others uh, to make those ideals true. But we, we are a miraculous country. Um, we have made it so, Black people, Native people, and uh, significant numbers of white people who have really tried to form a multiracial democracy, that have tried to uh, live up to these ideals uh, that we all are created equal, have made this country uh, miraculous, but we still fail every day. And I choose to believe um, in the America we could be, but that we haven't reached yet. And they want to believe uh, in this idea of America uh, as if it were true, even though it wasn't. Um, and I don't find any use for that. Patriotism isn't about wearing a flag pin on your jacket or, or uh, flying a flag outside. Patriotism is about uh, believing in your, in your fellow citizens, of respecting them, of, of believing that we should take care of our people in this country, uh, and believing that we should actually own up and atone for our sins and try to make things right. Not only was America the greatest, Nicole, but we need to make it great again. We we need to we need to bring the greatness back. Yeah, well, that's what I'm that's what I'm being told. <laughs> some of us some of us are still waiting uh, for that greatness, and um, I never saw that. Yeah. yeah, we, you know, this 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 is why we say that black folks are the most inconvenient uh, people in this country because. The only reason we're here is because we weren't great. Like every other group, even if they suffered, even if you know you're talking about Chinese immigrants uh, before the Chinese Exclusion Act, they opted in. We didn't opt into this shit. We were forced here. And uh, when you see us, we're the constant reminder of the hypocrisy at our founding. And that's why, you know, that's why we're so reviled in this country because. Black people force us to confront who we really are as a country. But at the same time, uh, Black people have given this country hope that we can be uh, who we want to imagine we could be. Like if, um, if Black people ever got equality, we'd be an amazing country because Black people fight for everybody. It's just I wish sometimes everybody would fight for us. I'm going to call church on that. Y'all want to <laughs> bring the benediction in? That was Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times Magazine in conversation with Brenton Mock, star journalist over at Bloomberg City Lab. And I really loved how these two got into the lived-in experiences of Black journalists and storytellers and the behind the scenes of the 1619 Project. So Nicole Hannah-Jones and Brenton Mock, thank you again so much for the incredible conversation. Temperature Check is a podcast from Grist, producing collaboration with Reasonable Volume. It's hosted by me, Andrew Simon. It's produced by Brianna Flores with editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Caroline Saunders is Grist's chief of staff and this podcast marketing lead. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. 
Grist is a nonprofit reader-supported newsroom covering climate, justice, and solutions. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends to subscribe to Temperature Check. You can also help to sustain our work by going to grist.org slash donate. That's G-R-I-S-T dot org slash donate. We hope you are in a safe place and enjoying some semblance of a holiday, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>